Vision Edge gives you less eye strain and reduced damage caused by blue light. We like to call Vision Edge sunscreen for the eye. It all starts with your highest level of visual performance, only achievable through scientifically proven Vision Edge. Welcome to the Open Your Eyes podcast. I'm Dr. Kerry Geld, the host of the documentary, Open Your Eyes. Please visit the film's website at openyoureyes2020.com, featuring interviews with more than 50 optometrists from around the country, sharing information on eye care and eye disease. Do you experience puffy eyes, loss of the outer third of your eyebrows, hair, hair loss, terrible fatigue, unable to lose weight, and at times depression? If so, you may be one of the 20 million Americans that suffer from one of the forms of thyroid disease. Today's guest, Dr. Alan Christensen, is a world expert on preventing, treating, and reversing thyroid disease. Dr. Christensen is an Arizona-based naturopath, medical doctor, and New York Times bestselling author. His books include The Adrenal Reset Diet, The Complete... Idiot's Guide uh, to Thyroid Disease, the, Meta the Metabolism Re Reset Diet, and the soon-to-be-released book, The Thyroid Reset Program. And be sure to watch his docuseries, Invisible Iodine. Thank you for joining me today, Dr. Christensen. Hey, Dr. Gell. Pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me. You know, before my audience, I do have to ask you, can you explain what a naturopathic medical doctor is? For sure. So I'm a naturopathic endocrinologist, to be fully precise. And I've gone through medical school uh, in my training. I also put a, quite a bit of depth of time into nutrition, lifestyle therapies, the nutraceutical role of treating illness. But I do all conventional care as well. And we have a medical specialty board under which I'm board certified as a fellow. So yeah, so I'm a regular physician with additional training in natural medicine and lifestyle care is what it comes down to. Right. You're an expert in thyroid. Tell us what the thyroid gland does and why it's so important. Yeah, a little tiny thing just in the front of your neck, and it controls how much of your body works. You know, it's kind of like the gas pedal in one sense. It controls how fast we make food into energy. It also controls how well we repair our tissues, uh, skin, hair, nails, things along those lines. And it also governs the overall immune response and how well nerve flow conducts throughout the body. So it's in charge of a lot, and its relevance is that Tiny changes in its function can lead to huge changes in how we feel on a given day. Every cell in the body has a thyroid receptor. Uh, why is that? Yeah, you're exactly right. So thyroid hormones are necessary for all cells and it governs their rate of activity. And cells respond differently. They've got different receptors in different parts of the body. But if thyroid hormones were absent, we'd be dead in a month or less. You know, we, our body would just choke on its own fluids. And these hormones, the amounts that are made are sub-microscopic. They're like tiny fractions of a grain of salt. And if they were, say, if they were tenfold, we would also not survive more than a few weeks. So the regulation of these things is critical for all of our cells to perform optimally. What percentage of the population has some form of thyroid disease? Yeah, overt thyroid disease, most would argue at least 10 to 15%. If you talk about earlier stages, you could easily double that. So it, it's quite common. And each decade we live, it gets more common. 
and it's more common in females by a lot. Why do you think yeah. that is? Well, pretty much all thyroid disease is autoimmune. So we think about Hashimoto's, which is the most common cause of low thyroid, and Graves as the most common cause of overactive thyroid. And that makes up probably 97% or more of thyroid disease. Autoimmune disease seems to be between six to 10 times more common amongst women than men. And we think that there's some role between the estrogen testosterone difference, how that affects the immunity. We also think that a lot of these diseases are based upon genes that are more common on the X chromosome, which women have two of. And finally, we think that interactions between the cells from the placenta and a woman's circulation may also be parts of driving autoimmunity. So women get more autoimmune thyroid disease and thyroid disease is mostly autoimmune disease. There are some people get hyperthyroid, some people get hypothyroid. How does the, why does that happen? Why does some go one way and why does some go the other way? You know, it sounds like a simple question, doesn't it? And the funny thing is that the diseases are almost identical. They're almost the exact same thing. So in one case, I mentioned about Graves' disease. The thyroid has receptors as well, and it's listening to see when the body wants it to work. Imagine like you hit the doorbell and you open the door, right? So the thyroid's got a doorbell. And when the brain rings the doorbell, it opens the door and lets out some thyroid hormone. Well, sometimes that doorbell gets a short circuit and the immune cells are attacking it. So nobody's at the door, but the doorbell's going off. So that's the one more common overactive disease. The underactive one is where the insides of the thyroid just get broken up by the immune system. And those diseases, they're, they're all, in terms of the molecule that's the target of attack by the immune system, they're almost identical. They're barely different. And there is also overlap. There are many cases in which people's immune systems attack both of those targets. And they can be overactive or underactive or progress back and forth. So yeah, they're, even though they can manifest so differently, they're almost the same thing. And one last bizarre wrinkle is that because your body works so hard to make the most of thyroid hormones, we try to make the right amount. It's never perfect. So everything out in circulation has a lot of tools at play to help it fine tune and juggle, almost like local politics and you know, federal allocations. And because of that, when there's way too much thyroid hormone, your body fights it. And you might even feel like there's too little. And then vice versa, when there's too little, you really hold on to it and use all you can. And you can feel like there's too much. So the symptoms can jump and forth, be back and forth on either side of that. What's the average amount of time somebody gets a proper diagnosis that they have a thyroid issue? That's a great question. Our best estimates are about 10 to 13 years. So it's a long haul. You know, people first get symptoms. There can first be signs of a measurable autoimmune response. And then there's ways by which the body starts to compensate. But by, by our formal guidelines and by some standards of practice, the way we pick it up can only show up after we've really decompensated. So yeah, first we're attacking the gland, then the gland's trying to hold on. It's only when it can't hold on anymore, that's when it commonly gets diagnosed. So it's a good question. There can be a large gap between those things. People can suffer for a long time. And why is it so hard to diagnose? And what are, I guess, to go with that, what are some of the symptoms that people may have? Yeah, so the symptoms, I'll jump on that one first. Uh, the symptoms can be common things you can see from a lot of conditions, and that's one difficulty. And a lot of things too, you know, I, I heard somewhere that 20% of the population has a certain cluster of symptoms on any given day, even when they're perfectly healthy. So there are things like vague aches and pains and fatigue and malate and mood changes. 
you know, we all have our days that are off. And so it can be hard to separate a bunch of bad days from a disease process. And then too, there's a lot of ways by which when our body isn't working right, it affects us in ways that are not distinct from one another. So that's another problem. But some of the big symptoms, we think about three big categories of thyroid symptoms. So one is categories, how the thyroid affects our output of energy. When we can't generate energy, we're tired. Uh, our muscles ache, we get injured from exercise, we don't enjoy it. Our brains are sluggish, we forget things easily. You know, our mood is lower, we get anxious, we're less resilient to stressors. The other big category is how the thyroid affects protein synthesis. So we have drier skin, our nails are more brittle, our tendons are more prone to injury. Women can see diffuse thinning of head hair is a real common part of that. And all these ways connective tissues aren't that great. And the third big category of symptoms relates to the gland itself. So in the disease state, the gland can become painful or sore. That's not as common in most types, but it can also just swell. And it's rather typical to see some changes in the voice, you know, hoarseness or difficulty swallowing or sensations of pressure. So those are the real big symptoms. And people tend not to have a large number of symptoms, which can seem odd, but they often have just a couple that are unique to them. Has thyroid disease, the incidence, has it been increasing over the years? You know, it sure has. And we look at autoimmunity. We also, we've got a lot of data on thyroid cancer. And thyroid cancer, its changes do correlate with changes in hypo and hyperthyroidism. And we can measure the cancer types easier. So they're often used to gauge to answer that question. And thyroid cancers itself, they've gone up threefold since about 1980. And it's not more detection. It really is on the up. So we see the same trend about other versions of thyroid disease. The data are not as clear because thyroid cancers is better documented. But yes, thyroid disease is clearly on the rise. Why do you think thyroid cancer is on the rise? And what do you feel is the main causes of thyroid cancer? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, it being on the rise. So funny thing is that the most common, almost all thyroid disease comes down to autoimmune Hashimoto's. That itself covers 95% of this. That term, the doctor who developed that concept, we named it after him, that all came about in 1907. And so 2007 inspired a lot of researchers to say, what do we have to show for the last 100 years? You know, what have we figured out since Dr. Hashimoto got us started? And they've been giving a lot of new critical analysis. What they've found is that there's really three big drivers of thyroid disease that, that hold true after a lot of ways you would refine the data. And it's, it's age and gender and iodine status. Those are the big three that really matter the most. Um, age and gender, not easy things to really control or correct midstream, right? But our iodine status seems to be the biggest opportunity as far as something we can do something about. So how about like the, flor the fluoride and chlorine and bromide? How does that affect the thyroid? And that's a great question, Dr. Gelb. And there's been a lot, lot written and thought about that. And that 2007 thing that I mentioned, a lot of old ideas were revisited. And in some ways, new data was generated. Also, old data was reanalyzed. So you mentioned several things. So uh, fluoride, chlorine, and bromide. So those are all halides. They're all things that sit in the same column, the periodic table as iodine does. They're all quite a bit further up. They're not anywhere near as high proton atoms as iodine, but they're all in that same table. So this thought they might act similarly. Fluoride is well-documented to block thyroid function at high enough dosages. And prior to the 40s, before we had thyroid-specific slowing medications, 
fluoride was used for treating hyperthyroidism. The same thing could be said true for lithium. However, there's a threshold below which fluoride doesn't seem to be relevant. And that's probably between five and 10 milligrams per day. So there've been several pretty large studies looking at areas that have very unusual amounts of elemental fluoride naturally occurring in the waters. And in some cases that may alter thyroid function, but fluoridated waters don't appear to change it, nor, do, nor does fluoride used for dental treatments, nor does the ambient amount of fluoride found in a lot of common foods. So then we think about uh, chlorine and chlorides, and it turns out they don't really have direct interactions with iodine. Uh, chlorine gas can be deadly. Uh, chlorine exposure can be an irritant for those that are asthmatic. So not to, not to give chlorine a free pass in all ways, but it has been looked at with association with thyroid disease and found not to be relevant. Last up you mentioned was bromide, and that's fascinating. I just, uh, this has been undergoing a big change in our perspective on it. We thought that perhaps because it was in that same column, it might alter thyroid function. There were some pretty big studies done, and people were given doses of bromide way outside of what you would ever consume by just the ambient levels in the diet. And really their thyroid function, it didn't budge. And some groups, even at the highest dosages, it wasn't significant, but their thyroid function seemed to get a bit better. So yeah, and now this is bizarre. Now bromide has been recategorized as an essential nutrient. We now know that we need it for some nutritional pathways of collagen synthesis. Is there any foods that have bromide in it other than the artificial bromide they put in like bread? Yeah, yeah. So brominated dough conditioners, there's also brominated coloring agents. You can find things like Mountain Dew or whatnot. Uh, yes, there's a lot of ambient levels in foods. There's not a lot of things that are, there's not a lot of outliers. There's not a lot of foods that are way above the others, but pretty much all the time we're exposed to some. And that's one of the reasons why it took so long to realize it was essential because no one really ever runs out of it. But yeah, it's in a lot of things. How about infections? How can infections affect thyroid, the thyroid? Yeah, yeah. Great question. So different versions of thyroid disease, there's one called subacute thyroiditis. And that's almost like having a flu constrained to your thyroid. So after an acute illness, some people say, hey, I feel better now. My, my bronchitis is gone. But now their thyroid is acutely painful, like excruciatingly painful. And they often go through three stages of alterations of thyroid function. First, it's overactive, then it's underactive. And then normally it levels out where it should again. That might be like six to eight weeks. Because of the dramatic effect that certain viruses can have in the virus in that condition, many speculated that certain infections must be causing all versions of thyroid disease. And that, that's also gone through the wash here since 2007 and no longer a leading theory. So apart from subacute thyroiditis, we don't think other versions are highly correlated with infections. Having said that, they are immune diseases and anything that does stress the immune system can make it more apt to precipitate something that's latent that could happen at some given point in time. And how about adrenal fatigue? Conventional medicine typically doesn't, doesn't look at that as a possible cause of thyroid disease, but in functional medicine, we, we kind of do. And where do you yeah. stand on that? Yeah, yeah. So I've, I've written on that one too. In adrenal fatigue, there's, there certainly are many instances in which our hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis has been altered by chronic stress responses. Healthy people make this morning cortisol spike. They shut it off when they go to bed. And that's the cortisol slope. And per the Whitehall 2 study, that was a better predictor of early death than smoking status was, you know, having a bad cortisol slope. So it's a big deal. It's very relevant to health. And then that cortisol slope is also one of the ways that our body fine tunes its response to thyroid hormones. 
the cortisol ebb and flow is what allows for proper cell membrane permeability to thyroid hormones. So if that cortisol slope is backward, always low or always high, that can make the body more brittle and less responsive to thyroid hormones. So it, it can be relevant for sure. And how can you test for cortisol? What's the best way to do it? Yeah, so we've got adrenal diseases and what I would call adrenal dysfunction. And the adrenal diseases, they're not as common. They're a little more easy to diagnose. And in those cases, even screening blood markers of cortisol can be good starting places because there's really little being made. So with, when the thyroid gets low, like Hashimoto's, the immune system breaks it down. The equivalency with the adrenals is Addison's disease. It's just like Hashimoto's of the adrenals. And the difference though is that it doesn't ride on as big of a spectrum. It's more common that if it's there, it's more rapidly progressive and there's very little cortisol output. So it tends to show up easier. Now, adrenal dysfunction, we were just talking about, that's been called adrenal fatigue, it's different. You know, your blood levels of cortisol could be fine, low, or high. And so in those cases, a test that non-invasively and non-disruptively shows your morning and your nighttime cortisol is the best way to gauge that. And right now, those are the salivary tests because they can give a good idea of your free cortisol at those times of day. And a standard lab could do that? In some cases, they can. You know, Dr. Gelb, I've done that in the past. And like Quest or LabCorp, they have the capacity to do those assays. But, you know, our, our team quit doing it through them because they had a hard time. They didn't have systems set up to have multiple samples in a day and then properly report the differentiation of those samples and their collection times. It's just not their focus. And the other problem is that patients would do that. And the hope was that the test would be covered for them but the out-of-pocket charges they got surprised with were way more than just the direct pay cost they would have had if they went through a lab that focuses on those things. <laughs> and people that wake up exhausted, but then they get a second wind at the end of the day. Can yeah. you talk about how that, affect, how that affects the, the cortisol cycle? Yeah, for sure. So that can be a function of it as well. So the cortisol cycle can be normal. It can be always high, you know, always low, or just backward. And the backward cycle has been colloquially called the wired and tired stage. And that can often be what you're describing. You know, Dr. Gelb, a simple symptom that can help someone really know if their adrenals might be relevant to their conditions or not is how repeatable their symptoms are, how predictable they are to a time of day. You know, one of the big things about adrenal function, it controls the body's circadian rhythms. So yeah, if you feel well, but a big problem is you're wiped out, but you get this crazy second wind always about maybe mid-afternoon or maybe like nighttime, that's a big sign there may be an issue with that circadian cycle. Not to go down a rabbit hole, but to, if you go outside in the morning and you're getting yeah. morning sun, how does that help our circadian rhythm? And that's a that great help? point. There's, there's probably few things more powerful than what you just described for helping reset our circadian cycle. My book on that, that was one of the biggest therapies I encouraged the most. And the, the thought is that it's window of your first hour of being awake and it's about a half an hour of exposure to your eyes so this is your work here so it's not about bronzing in your speedo it's just letting your eyes take in some sunlight and you could probably explain this better than i can but we talk about light intensity in terms of lux units and even indoors in a bright environment it's not the same thing that it is outside on a cloudy day so we just don't get that exposure we need for our circadian cycles Right. It's so important for us to go outside in the morning to get morning sun for a half hour. And people don't realize how it could really affect how they feel at night, help them sleep better, help them wake up with more energy just to get some morning sun. It's I know the single me, thing I encourage the most for good adrenal health. 
I know for me personally, I always drive, if I can't go out in the morning, I drive with the sunroof open just so I can get some sun. <laughs> That's great. So if we could talk about foods and how that could affect the thyroid. What are foods that are, are bad for the thyroid? What are foods that are good for the thyroid? So this is awesome. This is what I'm really excited about with the next book and that whole new renaissance that's come these last few years. There's also been a lot of ideas about, yeah, what's driving thyroid disease? How are foods played into that? You know, and we've known that autoimmune diseases can cluster and we've seen that there's the overlap between celiac and thyroid disease. There's a lot of theories about maybe gluten was the culprit. People have thought about certain elements of plant foods that are perhaps inflammatory being culprits. And when it's all been said and done, a lot of things may have some contribution, but once you, everything you put, everything that's relevant all together, all that together is nowhere, nowhere close to the effect size of iodine. You know, number two through number 20 together is nothing compared to the effect of number one. And that's, and that's iodine. So if we go back to 1992, tragically, we had 112 nations on planet earth that were categorized by the World Health Organization as severely iodine deficient. And we had a whole lot of people that, you know, they were born, they developed, they never got a fair shot to have healthy brain function because of this critical mineral deficiency. So they put a lot of efforts into this and it was a huge win for public health. By 2014, that 112 number was down to zero, which was great. However, there's this window of iodine tolerance and People have different windows. Those that have the narrowest windows are those that are most prone to thyroid disease. And so as of 2014, now we've got zero nations severely iodine deficient. We have 52 nations that are categorized as at risk for thyroid disease due to iodine excess. And the United States is one of those. So how do we reconcile, there's a lot of doctors that recommend high dose iodine, 10 milligrams, really high dose, 20 milligrams. Yeah. And a lot of times those people wind up with Hashimoto's or hypothyroid. How do we reconcile when somebody needs iodine, when they don't need iodine, and the difference between iodine and iodide? Sure. The last one's real easy. I'll jump on that one first. So iodine and iodide. Basically, iodide is an oxide, and iodine is the volatile form that's, that's more chemically active. Iodine is not stable on the, on the Earth's surface for very long, so we do make it inside our thyroid, but pretty much all versions either start out as iodide or they become iodide once they contact the skin or the gastrointestinal tract. We oxidize that via thyroid peroxidase and make it into iodine within select compartments of the body like the thyroid. So yeah, so basically all roads lead to iodide within the body and we convert that. The one exception is when the amounts, there's, there's appropriate amounts, deficiency, excess, and then toxicology. So toxicology is where there's so much iodide that it spontaneously converts to iodine even when the body's not trying to do that. And that's when iodine becomes fatal. And that's why it was a big part of, it was the most common cause of suicide in the early part of the century, last century. So that's a simple one. In terms of why is there a big discordancy in medicine? Boy, we'd have to sit down and have some beverages and talk through that one for a little while. But there was basically one, one group, one, one author who wrote about this in the early 2000s, and he inspired a few others. And his ideas, they seemed really plausible and they were very intuitive. They were very logical. But so many things about thyroid and iodine are neither intuitive nor logical. And they don't really suffer our common apprehensions. So we often think that if a nutrient does something, then more of a nutrient must do more of that thing. But when we look at how the body works with our nutrients, our hormones, our biochemistry, 
there's many examples that are not true. And we see a lot of C-shaped curves or J-shaped curves in the relationship between a disease and a nutrient. And there's no more striking examples in the case of iodine. So yeah, deficiencies cause disease, but excesses cause disease. And the gap between those can be as little as 150 micrograms. So this one group had some ideas that again, seem plausible and they took on some steam, they ran some momentum, but they just didn't fly with what we've learned in the last century about iodine. And the story's gotten stronger and further away from that approach. So we're finding that actually it's an iodine, iodine excess that's causing the problems. Where are we getting all this iodine? Are we getting it from the air? Are we getting it from the sea? Are we getting it from the salt? Are we getting it from our food? Where are we getting it all? You know, all of the above, some are more relevant than others. Uh, curious thing is we do get some from the air. That's probably more relevant if we're right by coastal areas, but it's probably not a big contributor in most cases. So we do get iodine in iodized salt. Funny thing is that a lot of popular salts today have more iodine than iodized salt does, such as pink Himalayan salt. It probably has twice as much based upon assays. We do get it in our foods, but the forms that are most relevant are where it shows up as a contaminant. So it's a contaminant in dairy foods. Uh, cows are often, they're often given teat sanitizers that are iodine-based. In fact, in this coming year, there's massive amounts of work trying to find non-iodized products that are effective sanitizers that are safe, that are not an irritant to the udder. So that's the focus of a lot of research, but much comes in from contamination. And then with uh, the other big source is breads and baked products. And I think that's why many have felt they've improved their thyroid function by going gluten-free they've cut out a lot of unnecessary iodine. So some companies use iodine as a dough conditioner. This is bizarre. Some big assays have shown that you could go down to your supermarket, buy some bread, different brands, healthy brands, you know, commercial brands. You might find seven, eight, seven, eight times a day's safe intake in one slice of bread. And if you look at the label and if you look for iodized dough conditioner, that's not a valid predictor of how much iodine will be in the bread. So it's, it's some version of a contaminant. Yeah. And how about in like uh, personal hygiene products? Yeah, that's a phenomenal thing that I'm pulling out in this book. So they've outlawed the use of iodine in hand sanitizers because too many hospital workers were developing thyroid disease and they found a link that way. Iodine does absorb across intact healthy skin, probably about four to 5% of it does. And when we think about its relevance at the microgram potency, that can be a lot. So I've done some investigation and found that about a quarter of personal care products might have enough to augment or push you way above a safe daily dose. How about like seafood and nori and seaweed? Yeah, so sea, seaweeds, AKA sea vegetables, they've got a whopping amount. You know, kelp has a lot. Nori is the lowest, but there's still some. And those are things that um, they can be, they're things that not everyone eats in America, but for those who do, they're really big contributors. Seafood, this is the thing that makes me the most nuts about the whole story is that there's so much data about the benefits of seafood. I hate to come down and make people worried about that. So there are some versions that are safer than others. There are some that are pretty consistently low in iodine and seafood has many health benefits. It's also not as variable of a category. So it does have it, but it's not likely to have this much and then that much, it's more consistent. So yeah, I do encourage people to educate themselves and use versions that are still keep it in the diet, but think about lower iodine sources of it. There was a study with Japanese women and, the, and, uh, and breast cancer and uh, iodine. Could you explain that? Yeah, yeah. So another 
common thought that's popular in natural medicine is that iodine is protective against breast cancer and that it's been argued that towards the argument that we need more iodine, one line of thought has been the Japanese are healthy people, they consume more iodine, therefore it must be good. And also the Japanese women have lower rates of breast cancer and they consume iodine, so therefore iodine must be protective. But when they've looked more closely and looked at subpopulations, they've actually taken Japanese women and categorized them based upon their iodine status. You know, those that have the most, the moderate and the least. And they then compared their iodine status to their development of breast cancer. And it turns out iodine status is one of the stronger predictors of development of breast cancer amongst Japanese women. This has shown up in studies in other parts of the world as well. But there's been talk about even using iodine as one of the screening tools for breast cancer. So yeah, it's not protective that way. So in that study, the women that urinated the most iodine, had the most iodine in the urine had the greatest risk of, of breast cancer. They took some groups of women that were known to be diagnosed with breast cancer and those that were not, and then compared them based on their iodine status. And they found a strong link between those that were by far the highest, more represented than those with the breast cancer. The question I had when I read that was, is it possible that the women that have more iodine in their urine are just urinating it out more and not keeping it? And that it's really from lack of iodine because they're not keeping iodine, or is it really just because they had they're eating too much foods or it's being it's exposure? Yeah, yeah, fair question. So urinary iodine, as it correlates to whole body iodine status, the problem is that it's a horrible diagnostic tool. It's pretty much meaningless at the level of the individual, but over the level of populations, it, there's a there's a uh, about a 94 97% correlation between urinary iodine excretion of a population and of their overall iodine status. So there are ways in which by the short term if someone ingested a lot more or a lot less their urinary levels could be odd for a little while, but over time and over populations there's a pretty tight correlation between urinary iodine output and iodine status. That's the main way we gauge that in research. Thank you for that. Uh at one time, people were recommending iodine for fibrocystic breast disease yeah, yeah. and fibroids. Is that still something that you would recommend or not anymore? That's an awesome question. That's also part of how the idea of high-dose iodine got on the radar. The first author that talked about that, he was a gynecologist. He had seen some studies in which high-dose iodine was shown to be quite helpful for fibrocystic breast disease. So... Uh, Basically, it can help symptoms, but here's, here's the story we've learned since then. The, the current term is fibroadenomatous breast tissue. We used to call it fibrocystic. And they've shown that how breast cells respond to iodine goes on a spectrum. So normal non-lactating breast cells pretty well ignore it. Uh, cancerous breast tissue takes it up very aggressively. And then fibroadenomatous tissue is somewhere in between. It's sucking iodine up kind of like breast cancer is, but not quite as aggressively. And when you flood, these are done by a thing called the sodium iodide symporter. It's a selective pump that pulls in iodine. Now, when you flood an area with iodine, the pump shuts off. So it's just like you got a lot of current in your house and the fuse blows rather than your wiring burning the house down. So this is called the Wolf-Chaikoff effect. It's one of the ways the body protects itself against high-dose iodine. So with fibroadenomatous breast disease, what's happening is as the breast tissue is taking up iodine, this is a sodium iodide symporter. It's also taking up fluid, it's taking up water. So part of the congestion and the pressure is this fluid uptake. So when you get a high dose of iodine, you shut down that symporter for a period of time. You act like a diuretic. So you, you can stop the pain and lower that pressure. 
However, that mechanism doesn't last for more than about three to six weeks. And longer term, the effects can be the opposite. Macular degeneration is a leading cause of vision loss, with 15% of Americans being at risk or already affected. Scientific evidence proves that by using mesozeaxanthin, lutein, and zeaxanthin together replenishes the macular pigment and promotes healthier vision. This formula comes in only one product, MacuHealth. Thank you for tuning in to the Open Your Eyes podcast. If you like the video you're watching, please hit the like button. Also, hit subscribe for weekly new episodes of the podcast, along with pod winks and bonus content. All right, let's get back to the show. What does iodine get in the air? Well, it's, uh, it's in the air. It's everywhere. It's, it's quite permeable. And there's an iodine cycle that's really just like the water cycle, which is why it ends up in the oceans. So one study about iodine being ingested from the air looked at a group of people in Ireland that per their dietary habits, they were expected to be iodine deficient, but they were not. And they tracked the exact people when they were in coastal areas and then away from coastal areas. And they tracked the ambient iodine levels in the atmosphere in these different regions. And yeah, if they were in coastal areas that had these massive kelp beds, they were breathing some in. And we've also known that in industrial applications where iodine is high in high amounts in airborne settings, people can get toxic from that as well. So it's, it's in the air. There's more of that in coastal areas. And yeah, we get a little bit from that. So what do you think causes goiters? Yeah, that's a great question. And not a, not a simple answer on that. A lot of things are involved with goiter causes. This can and, be- And what is a goiter? If you could explain that first. Yeah, thank you. So a goiter is an enlargement of the thyroid that's not productive. It's getting bigger. It's not making enough hormone necessarily, but it's not making too much. And it's more of an even diffuse enlargement. If we were to look back to the early part of the 1900s, parts of the US, a third of the kids around the Great Lakes had goiters. And iodine fortification came about because too many possibly eligible, eligible soldiers for World War I weren't medically eligible because of goiters. And that's why it came to the public health attention. So now, apart from the overt deficiencies or overt excess, we know that uh, some, there's some genetic factors for goiters. We know that alcohol status, tobacco status is relevant. We know that body weight has some predictive value. But, but yeah, there's, they're not as common in the modern world, but those are some known factors. Do you feel it's from lack of iodine? Well, that can be. So severe iodine deficiency is a known historical cause. That's no longer a relevant current cause, but certainly can be a factor. So what do you recommend? Do you recommend that people take iodine supplements anymore or in the United States, or are we just getting enough from our food and it's not necessary to take supplements anymore for iodine? Not necessary to take supplements, you know, and the most critical population in which they could be relevant would be pregnant women, the most vulnerable to being low in that. And the Cochrane Review Group did a pretty large study looking at all the data on whether even pregnant women should take iodine supplements. And their conclusion was that when they do so, they do have higher rates of thyroid autoimmunity. They do have higher rates of morning sickness, but there's no improvement to thyroid function for mother or baby by doing so. So it seems there's no, really no benefit for any group to do so. So from all the research you're doing, we, should, we don't really need to take iodine supplements. We get enough from everything that we're exposed to in our, in our food. And by having too much iodine could actually lead to problems such as... Correct. You know... There, there are always outliers. So I have seen sure. people that are total raw food vegans. All they're consuming is raw plant foods. And I have seen some develop iodine deficient goiters from that. So I'm not saying it's not possible, but standard American diets, most healthy diets, uh, paleo diets, most typical vegan diets, people are getting enough or they're ordering on too much. Actually, one big study looked at U.S. subpopulations. And if you break down the U.S. residents by 
uh, age, ethnicity, and gender, many subpopulations, 30 to 50% of them, are at the highest risk levels from iodine excess. So yeah, many are getting too much. Let's turn our attention to Hashimoto's disease. You mentioned it before as an autoimmune disease. It's, it's the most common cause of thyroid disease. If you could explain maybe the different stages and, and you know, what are some of the early symptoms that would uh, alert people? Yeah, so Hashimoto's, you're right, is by far the most common version of thyroid disease, and it's an immune response. Earliest symptoms are going to be things along the lines of changes in energy output, um, easier weight gain. Sometimes the issues about speaking changes or swallowing can show up, memory changes, menstrual irregularities, the dry skin, the hair loss. And in terms of stages, the first, the first stage is when the immune response starts to target the thyroid itself. So the immune system identifies thyroid proteins as being foreign. Now the mechanism with that, this comes back to iodine again, there's a protein called thyroglobulin. And when we make thyroid hormones, we iodinate thyroglobulin. We make the main thyroid hormones out of that. When there's too much thyroid, too much iodine, the thyroid can only get rid of so much so fast. And the extra amounts, this is now iodine, not iodide. The extra amounts, they oxidize thyroglobulin and they make it and also thyroid enzymes appear foreign. So yeah, the immune system first starts to identify these things as foreign and they start to attack it. The next stage is the attack progresses and the body has to really yell at the thyroid to make it work. It can keep up, but it's gotta be yelled at to do so. And then the final stage is then decompensation to where the gland is being yelled at, but that's not enough. It just can't keep up anymore. Let's talk about the labs to help diagnose this. Talk about TSH, free T3, free T4. And I know you're not a big uh, fan of reverse T3, but uh, how come you don't like reverse T3? And when is it? when would you use uh, do that lab? Sure. So the first thing about general labs for screening for thyroid disease. So yeah, TSH, that's the one that's pretty much in part of all panels. That's the brain asking the thyroid to work. It's backwards. So the more your brain is telling your thyroid to work, the higher the number goes. And it's a good tool. It's actually one of the earliest indicators. I think the biggest drawback about it is that conventional doctors can put too much weight on the normal range. We've got lots of evidence that the normal range contains a lot of values that may not be healthy, that may not be considered best thyroid function. So then we have the output from the thyroid, uh, T3, T4. They can be measured by their total protein bound forms or their more accurate free fractions. We've got the thyroid hormones, I'm sorry, the thyroid antibodies. There's three main ones we measure. There's thyroid stimulating immunoglobulin, uh, antithyroid peroxidase, and antithyroglobulin. And these are things that they can be present with autoimmune thyroid disease, but they can also be absent with autoimmune thyroid disease. Kind of an odd concept, but they don't actually cause autoimmune thyroid disease. They're, they're smoke, but they're not the fire. You know, they're, they're often present, but not always present. And you can have hot coals and no smoke, but still have damage going on. So yeah, so you can have negative thyroid antibodies, but still have thyroid disease. And then for structural evaluation, we think a lot about the thyroid ultrasound. And sometimes that's a good way to gauge autoimmune disease when it's not apparent through the blood markers. Uh, so, you mentioned, oh, go ahead. No, the, what, what range would you feel is optimal for TSH, free T3, free T4? Yeah, there's a lot of data that's been done on how those numbers look in people that have no thyroid disease and have no reason to have abnormal thyroid function. And the funny thing is that T3 itself, when we, so many people have answered that question by, 
they should all be on the high side. So the TSH being backward, it should be on the low side. Others should be on the high side of normal. But I, I put more weight on how it plays out in healthy populations. So healthiest populations, they've got a low TSH, uh, not below range, but between about 0.4 and per study, 1.9, two, maybe two and a half. But there's a lot of data saying that the further you get above two, the more probable you are to have problems with your metabolism, long-term disease risk, risk for certain cancers. So yeah, somewhere around 0.4 to two is a good range for that. Odd thing is that in healthiest people, they tend to have low normal T4 levels. They tend not to have the highest levels of T4. And in healthy populations, they've got a pretty big spectrum of free T3 levels. They can be low normal, uh, normal, high normal. You won't see them out of range much, but they can be pretty much all over the place for the healthiest people. Those that are consistently high in T3 actually have higher risks of several disease states and also higher risks for obesity and a high body mass index. That surprises a lot of people but that's how we see it in populations. Interesting. Talk about reverse T3. You know, a lot of times people talk about reverse T3 as a marker for in, that your body is holding onto toxins. Yeah, yeah. And uh, talk about the advantages of measuring the pros and cons. Sure, so thyroid hormones, I mentioned about how we, we make them, but then also we regulate them, like the cortisol, like a lot, there's a lot of ways we regulate them at a local level. and most of that regulation involves selectively taking iodine off of the hormone. And based upon how many we take off and which one we take off, we change the hormone to many, many subtypes. Uh, so most T4 is made into something called reverse T3, and that's an inactive thyroid hormone. In healthy people, it's probably 80% of their T4 is made into reverse T3. So kind of like we've got two kidneys, even though we can usually get by with one, we generally make a lot of thyroid hormone expecting not to use most of it. We, we waste most of it as reverse T3. There's also some new data saying that thyroid hormones work very differently in distinct compartments of the body. So we now know that reverse T3 is actually a critical thing for cognitive function and repair of nerve cell. So it, it is biologically active and we do need it in the body. Back in the 70s, there was a theory, actually like late 60s, there's a theory that reverse T3 was just all bad and that it somehow blocked the activity of other thyroid hormones. They did some pretty good studies. They actually gave people massive intravenous doses of reverse T3 and they watched all their other thyroid hormones and it really had no effect whatsoever. So, so that theory went by the wayside a long time ago, but it got resurrected in the late 80s by some doctors and it got popularized. So they've argued that reverse T3 is the bad guy, that it makes all these things not work. And what happens is that the body preferentially makes more or less T3 or reverse T3 based upon factors of maintaining thyroid balance. So there's a condition called euthyroid sick syndrome. And that's where someone is in the ICU, they've got congestive heart failure, they've got septicemia. And the thought is that they're shutting down their metabolism just to take any more stress off their body. So they have very high levels of reverse T3. And they've looked at these cases to say, well, is this, is this a, a feature or is this a bug? Is this the, something that's going wrong with the body or is this a defense mechanism? And they've actually given people thyroid hormone to see maybe they need more thyroid hormone. Maybe they can't make it. Maybe this reverse T3 is part of the problem and it's not helped. So now the idea is that this is probably more of a feature and not really a bug. So yeah, in critical ill states, reverse T3 levels can go very high. And then in hyperthyroid states, if someone has Graves' disease, 
or if they're taking a high dose of thyroid medication that has T4, they'll make massive amounts of reverse T3 trying to get rid of all of it. So it's not that they can't convert, it's that there's too much there, they wish not to. So that's the bulk of it. The other problem with reverse T3 is that we don't even know what its significance is in people that aren't in the ICU. There's a, you can take healthy people and you measure their reverse T3, you'll find them all over the place. Some will be low, some are high, they'll change on a day-to-day -day basis. So it's just really not a useful marker. A pitfall that I see is that people can measure that and see it high and they'll think they have some odd problem or some odd disease and either they're fine, it's not relevant, or they're just taking too much thyroid hormone and that's the main problem behind it. What's the best way to uh, follow a patient that's already being treated with thyroid medicine? Is it just the TSH or do you also want free T3 and free T4 and also look at the antibodies? You know, they can all have some relevance, especially in terms of diagnosis. When you're tracking someone and you're doing some granular, you know, someone who's on third medication, uh, a question that comes up really is, when are they at their best amounts and when can we make short-term adjustments to get it just right? So in the shortest term adjustments, the, the TSH is the main leading indicator. It's the first thing to change. It's not the first thing to stabilize, but it's the first thing to change. The T3 and T4, they are buffered by so many things that in a case of excess thyroid hormone, they're not the first thing to get high. They're the last thing to get high, especially T3. And in the case of a deficiency of thyroid hormone, they're the last thing to get low, especially T3, they're buffered so hard. So yeah, the TSH is the leading indicator. They're all relevant. There's a lot of debate as to how clinically relevant the antibodies are past the point of diagnosis. But yeah, so for initial diagnosis, they're all important. Personally, when I'm screening someone, my doctors are tracking patients, we're looking at the TSH with short-term adjustments and at all markers for more large annual or semi-annual screens. Explain what the TSH actually is and where does it come from? Yeah, great question. So it's thyroid stimulating hormone and it comes from the pituitary gland, the front portion of that. And it's made in response to a hormone from the hypothalamus called thyrotropin releasing hormone. So the, the CEO tells the manager to tell the workers to get to work is basically what the loop is doing. And thyroid stimulating hormone has effects upon pretty much all parts of thyroid physiology, uh, iodine uptake, protein synthesis, hormone release, hormone conversion. Interesting thing we now know is that TSH is also used by many other parts of the body. It's a critical part of bone cell turnover, of repair of vascular lining, and also for regeneration of neurons. So we use it outside the thyroid as well. And you have a specific number that you look for, uh, that you, a goal for, or an optimal for free T3 and free T4? Well, as a generalization, and I think about how do we mimic healthy scores? And, and yeah, the, the best populations, so and given that, we shouldn't see free T3 out of range. There's really no, healthy populations have a pretty diverse range of T3 levels. T4 tends to be low normal, but that's not something we really try to adjust or manipulate. So the thought is really how to first get someone's TSH and optimal and watch how the others play out. And there certainly are ways in which per someone's age, their cardiovascular status, their pregnancy, per their, their estrogen hormone status. So other things influence what their, their best TSH looks like. But yes, that'll be in a narrower range than normal. How about temperature? At one time that was big, especially when we had the mercury thermometers. Now with the new thermometers, they're not quite as accurate. What's your feeling on temperature? That's a great question, Dr. Gelb. Yeah, so Dr. Broda Barnes wrote a lot about that. And it was kind of a funny thing because he had this career that spanned an arc. He was an army medic. 
his career spanned the arc of really no thyroid tests to decent thyroid tests. And the earlier years in which there was no good thyroid tests, they were trying anything they could to figure out where someone's thyroid function was before just knowing it was so, so severe one way or another. And thyroid hormones do affect body temperature along with a lot of other things. But the pitfall is that not a really tight linear relationship. So, and the other thing too, is that our thoughts about body temperature are probably pretty antiquated. If you ask most people or medical people, the answer is 98.6, right? <laughs> so that was, that was data from Germany from the late 1800s. <laughs> a large study was done in 2003 looking at millions of data points. And it turns out that, you know, as guys, we've got a rather narrow range of probably somewhere around like 96 to 100 when we're healthy. But women, they can be in the low 90s to the, to the upper 99s, you know, low 100s, perfectly normal, you know, with no disease states. A partial truth is that with severe excess of thyroid hormone, in the case of thyroid storm, there often is a fever present, but that's more so of a late stage like ER manifestation. There's not a linear relationship for most people between thyroid hormones and body temperature. So yeah, not a good diagnostic tool. So let's talk about treatment. If we're going to use a treat with, uh, uh, we're going to treat hypothyroid. So synthroid versus desiccated thyroid. If you could tell what the differences are, the pros and cons to each. Yeah, for sure. So treatment is a generality. I think now more and more about diet more than anything. The bigger studies that I've cited and looked at have shown that 78% of people can often have their disease reversed within three months by just diet therapy only. Those that are on treatment, and many do need treatment, many that longer term. There's been, uh, historically, the use was more common for desiccated thyroid, natural forms of thyroid. Starting in 1980, that switched almost overnight over the course of a few years to synthetic hormones and T4 only being the main reason, being the main, the main treatment. Now, prior to 1970, we didn't know that T3 was made from T4 in the circulation, and we didn't know that TSH affected cardiovascular health. So before then, people were put on treatment and they were tracked to see if they felt better and given measurements of their basal metabolic rate. And their treatment was increased until they had a high basal metabolism and their symptoms were resolved. But the problem is they had massive rates of cardiovascular death. Many were overtreated and they didn't really know who was who. So when they learned these things in the 70s, they thought, oh, thank goodness, we can stop giving people heart attacks. We can stop all this cardiovascular death. And they did, but they also quit resolving many symptoms. So there's now a lot of reinterest in including T3 therapy, such as combination therapies like natural desiccated thyroid. And there's many papers now that are coming out, many that are being done. But the short answer is when patients don't know which pill they're on, most of them feel better when they're taking natural desiccated thyroid. You know, blinded crossover studies have shown this. There certainly are some to where that's not true. They do better on T4 only but a large number do better on combination therapy. Explain what the three, the four means in yeah. the T3, the T4, when we're talking about synthroid or desiccated thyroid that may have T2, T3, T4. Yeah, yeah, great question. So the T numbers are really, T is thyroglobulin. That's the main protein, which is the backbone for thyroid hormones. And the number is the number of iodine atoms on the active moiety. So T4 has four iodine atoms. You pop the correct one off and you've got T3 you pop one from the opposite side off, you've got reverse T3. You break the whole thing in half, you've got T2. There are also lesser hormones and more variations on those. But so far we know for sure that T4, T3, and one type of T2 are biologically active. 
And those who make their own thyroid hormones have got all three of those in a certain proportion. So one argument for desiccated thyroid is that you've got these three things like the body would do it normally. And desiccated thyroid comes from where? It comes from pigs. They make it from pigs. There are some over-the-counter versions that come from cows. Those aren't regulated and there are valid fears about uh, prion-based diseases, uh, mad cow disease and whatnot. So yeah, so pigs are the preferred source of that and they are available in forms that are standardized. Do you, are you partial more to armor, or natural thyroid, nature thyroid, uh, well, WP? Uh, which, which one do you tend to be, uh, do you, you tend to use the most? So WP and nature thyroid, and I'll explain that. So the differences between brands of natural thyroid are how tightly the manufacturer chooses to regulate. They all have a certain mandatory regulation window. They can't do worse than that. But some may choose to voluntarily go tighter than others. The other difference is just inactive ingredients. So nature thyroid and WP have a manufacturing tolerance of about 2% variation. And then WP has, you know, the only inactive ingredients are coconut and artichoke. So it's pretty clean. Other brands just have, uh, so there's NP thyroid, which has about a 5% manufacturer's tolerance. And then Armour thyroid has about a 10% manufacturer's tolerance. So which one, if someone's a new thyroid patient, if you're going to start them on a medication, typically what do your doctors do? Which one? W, WP is our favorite. It's got the narrowest tolerance of variation and it's got the least binders or fillers. And how do binders and fillers affect different medications, especially in thyroid? It's a great question. Many cases, their effects are probably not relevant, but all things thyroid, we're living in a world of micrograms. So, you know, a milligram is a grain of salt, a microgram is one one thousandth of that. And so tiny changes in absorption or binding can yield large effects in the clinical outcome. So in, in most cases, if someone is on the same thing all the time, if it's at least consistently made, they can probably calibrate and adjust that for their own needs. But when they go from brand to brand, they might be starting over. And there are those to where their absorption is more difficult and it's harder for them, even, even if they're on one brand, to get consistent results because they're not breaking it down consistently. At one time, people recommended LDN or low-dose naltrexone for autoimmune thyroid disease. What's your feeling on that, and it does, is it effective at all? You know, not strong feelings either way. I've not looked at it in deep for some time. I, I did a survey with a group of people that were big proponents of that. Probably This is probably like 15 years ago. And the survey results kind of underwhelmed me in terms of the effects they were claiming to see. No one was too excited about that. There are some known complications, such as a seizure risk from that, which is probably rare, but yeah, I don't see strong, compelling data, and there is some negative data, which is also not strong, so I'm rather indifferent. I don't see it as really treating the cause in any way. When people are taking thyroid medication, what's the best way to take it, and what time of the day? Yeah, so time of day uh, is relevant. Morning is probably the closest mimic to your body's own biological function, and it's really critical to have it absorb well. So first thing in the morning, chug it down with a glass of water, give it an hour all by itself. Having said that, there's a lot of data about T4 being inhibited by coffee, even 10 to 12 hours later. So people that have a hard time with a dose that should be enough or have a hard time staying consistent, they may need to rethink their, their coffee usage. Some take their thyroid right before bed to work around that. Can be an option, can be a little trickier, but yeah, that's a big factor. How about calcium pills or different types of vitamins that could affect, inter interfere? Yeah, anything, 
when it's taken at the same time, anything can interfere. When it's taken afterward, even six hours, many common types of calcium can be a culprit. The more insoluble types like uh, oyster shell calciums, calcium carbonates, uh, Elgical, which is popular now. These are things that can make thyroid hormones not absorb effectively. So if you're taking, say, calcium with it, does it cause a thyroid, uh, to the, the, the medication to have increased medication work more or work less? Almost universally poor absorption of it. Decrease. But the difficulty is it can also be poor and erratic. So it'll never make you get more of it. But if you're always doing it that way, some days it may not block it as much. So you might get erratic results still. <laughs> How about people that wake up and have to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night? They get up at three o'clock in the morning. Why they're up to take their thyroid medication. Sure. What's your opinion on that? Totally cool. I actually tell people, uh, put it in a, the, if you don't have kids or pets that might get into it, you can flip your medicine cap. A lot of medicine bottles, the cap, you can invert it and screw it back in, and it makes a little bowl on top of the bottle. So you flip the cap, you put the tablet in that bowl, you go to bed. The reason for putting it in there is when you wake up for real, you'll know for sure if you took it or whether you just think you did. <laughs> you might not remember what you did when you were half awake. <laughs> that, that, that is an issue. People forget whether or not they take, they take their medication. Very common. <laughs> So what is it about slow-release thyroid medication as opposed to taking a big bolus at one time? That's a good question. So there are some compounded forms that are made of methyl cellulose that are made to be slow-released. The argument on that side is that you have more stable blood levels. It's thought to be better. Uh, they've done some recent pharmacokinetic studies in which they've looked at minute-by-minute -minute absorption of slow-release thyroid compared to immediate release. And surprisingly, there's no difference. <laughs> there's really no effect they have on changing the uptake. The other consideration is that we always want to mimic what the body would do when it's working at its best. And healthy people with normal thyroid function, they don't have stable thyroid levels throughout the day. They have a bolus amount early in the day, and that tapers down as the day progresses. So to mimic the normal rhythm, I think it's best to do what the body would do in a state of health. So just... Uh, on that point, getting back to TSH, is that kind of like an average of the thyroid uh, of, of over like 30 days? Yeah, you can. It's a funny thing because it's a, it is an average over a large window of time. Some say like 60 to 90 days. However, a lot of things can cause it to vary by you know 10 to 30 percent. So the time of your menstrual cycle, the time of day, uh, fasting or non-fasting, timing of thyroid medications. And then recent intake of many different supplements, uh, biotin, probiotics, they can skew it pretty dramatically. So to get a consistent read on that, those things have to be taken into account for thyroid testing. Well, let's talk about prevention. We mentioned it before, we could prevent thyroid disease with diet in maybe 30 days, 60 days. Reverse. Uh, reverse. How can we, yeah. how can we do that? What, what are, what are, what's the diet? What's the prevention? What do you recommend? Yeah, so this is the whole basis of the thyroid reset diet, which is coming out here shortly. And clinical trials have shown that in people that have thyroid disease between two to five years of duration, if they can get their iodine down to a window that allows their glands to get rid of the excess, the disease process by and large reverses. So we used to think that autoimmunity, once it started, it wouldn't stop. But now we know it's got to be this in this context, it has to be maintained by something. And if there's not the extra iodine to maintain it, it goes away for many people. So really the one action step in the studies that were done was to pull iodine down to a low enough level. Now, those were studies that weren't done with consideration of long-term nutritional needs. And the window of time they showed could be three, six or nine months. 
when I wrote the thyroid reset diet, I worked with some nutritionist friends and some chefs. And I said, how can we do this to where you're not missing out on other important nutrients? We're not just cutting out all these big categories by swaths. I also worked with the USDA to get some pretty comprehensive food lists of over 600 foods and their iodine variants, because all the food categories can still be included once you know what are the big outliers to work around. And what are those outliers to work around? Well, in terms of food categories, there's outliers within dairy, within processed grains, within salts, seafood, sea vegetables, and egg yolks are the, are the biggest ones, and then topical compounds and supplements and medications. So, but yeah, all those food categories, like for example, with, with breads and grains, any kind of commercial bread is, can be a problem, but homemade breads can be fine, and whole grain products, brown rice or whatnot, they're not an issue. So there are a lot of options in all the categories. And how, do, how about selenium and zinc? What are the nutrients that we need to make the thyroid work properly? Yeah, good question. The nutrients we need for the thyroid work are the nutrients we need for everything, like all of them, they're all relevant. But you mentioned some of the two biggest ones. Probably selenium, zinc, and iron deserve the most attention for their, their central roles in thyroid function. And of those, probably none even more so than selenium. So people have a range of iodine tolerance that may be somewhat genetic, but if anyone is below their selenium needs, their range of tolerance becomes narrower. So selenium does a lot to help buffer and regulate the body's use of iodine. Do you recommend people eat Brazil nuts or actually take selenium uh, uh, vitamins? You know, this is a funny thing. Um, I can't think of many examples like this, but the evidence suggests that both dietary sources and supplemental sources are useful, but in ways that are probably distinct. So I do encourage one to 200 micrograms in supplemental form, and I do encourage good dietary amounts. And you just mentioned the biggest positive outlier by far is the Brazil nuts. Two to four a day is a great habit. And how about high fiber foods to yeah. help with the thyroid? Yeah, good thing for lots of reasons. Uh, Honestly, uh, we could talk all day about the ways in which fibers, all the categories of fibers are good for the body. So yeah, they're, they're wonderful for tons of health reasons. And how about staying away from foods, processed foods or foods with toxins in? Yeah, also good for general health. And this is funny because I've just been scouring the literature for the last three, four years, all things I can find about diet and thyroid. The, the literature is pretty absent on that. You know, you want to eat, there's your, your thyroid is not separate from the rest of your body. So you want to be healthy. You want all of you to be healthy for your thyroid to be healthy. But there's not a lot of data about things. Really, once you get past the 30,000 studies on iodine, there's about two dozen studies on gluten, and they're mostly showing that celiac and thyroid overlap. There's two studies showing that vegans had lower rates of thyroid disease. There's one study on autoimmune paleo diets showing that it didn't help thyroid function. And there's one study done in Croatia showing that certain food categories predicted thyroid autoimmunity. And it was really mostly saturated fat that was the biggest culprit. That's pretty much the data we have on, besides iodine. That's basically the data we've got on diet and thyroid disease. <laughs> How about detoxification? Does that help? Like the, as you mentioned in your book, the azuki beans. Yeah, yeah. So in general, there's also data about other waste building up within the thyroid, uh, mercury, cadmium. And yeah, lots of great foods can be helpful for lessening waste's ability to reabsorb from the gut back in the bloodstream. So green foods, high fiber foods, all very good things. Are you a fan of inf infrared sauna? Uh, yeah, yeah, sweating, saunas, uh, more ways you get junk out of your body, exercise, lots of breathing, it's all good. And how about goitrogens? Goitrogens, yeah, so pretty well studied, very relevant in areas of endemic goiter, which as of today on planet Earth are none. 
So the, the relevance that goitrogens have apart from that, they're generally compounds that are useful for our health. So glucosinolates and cruciferous vegetables, for example. Funny thing is that a lot of things that we know are good for us from plant foods are things that are actually poisonous in high amounts. So we call them phytonutrients. You could argue that they're phytotoxicants because most are really made to be insecticides or pesticides or herbicides. That's why glucosinolates in broccoli. And that's why caffeine is in tea. I mean, these, are, these are naturally occurring pesticides. The amounts that happen to be in our foods, we've adapted to them and they seem to help us. So a little bit of that kind of a poison makes our liver stronger, makes our liver think, oh, I've got to get ready for something that might be worse down the road. If you were to take that out and purify it and take a thousand times as much, you'd die from it. But luckily, and by no coincidence, the amounts we have in our common plants end up being useful. And apart from areas historically of endemic iodine deficiency, yeah, goitrogens are no different. They're things that have positive health benefits in context. And how about intermittent fasting? Um, you know, pretty not much data on thyroid specific effects as far as overall health goes. Some do quite well from that as far as a weight loss strategy. Some, the data I've seen suggests that it often ends up being a roundabout way to lower food for some people. So some people end up eating less by doing so. It's probably useful for them. And personal care products like red lipstick and, you know, I guess the average female puts about 170 different chemicals on their body. How does that prevention, how, how, how can, what kind of advice can we give? Yeah, for sure. You know, that, that's the thing that's going to be, I think, investigated much more in the near-term future. We know far less about that than we should. So many things that we put on our skin, we might as well be eating them as far as how they get into our bodies. And yeah, we know about the role of iodine and its relevance, and that's barely just coming out. You know, the FDA just started cracking down on its use in hand sanitizers, and it's been silent still on its use in cosmetics. That'll be coming out in the coming years for sure. And that's just one, that's just one chemical, yeah. So what kind of diet, I know there's not a lot of information on thyroid and diet, but what kind of diet do you typically recommend in general to help keep people healthy? Yeah, so I think a lot about diversity of food by category, you know, as many categories as foods as possible. I think about the relevance of protein to overall food intake. I've seen a lot of evidence about our proportion intake of protein being a big driver of our body weight, our metabolism, our satiety. I think about a diversity of types of fibers there's about 16, 17 naturally occurring types of fibers in our diet. And it's not really a thing, it's a category. So the more we can cover a big range of plants from uh, root vegetables, leaves, stem vegetables, intact whole grains, legumes, seeds, nuts, more categories of things like that, the better we can do for our fibers. And, you know, total food quantity, it is a very relevant factor. You know, I think that we can I think in the natural side, we can go too far to say eat good foods and talk about the quantities not being relevant, but they're relevant. You know, when bears hibernate, they put on hundreds of pounds in a short period of time. They're eating berries and salmon, right? <laughs> so yeah, you want to eat good foods, but the quantities do matter too. <laughs> and as far as protein, where do you stand on, on protein? Like as far as grass-fed meats or, you know, organic chicken and turkey? Uh, yeah, uh, wild salmon, sardines. What do you stand on, on proteins? I've gone really deep into the literature on there. There's discussions about the ethics, the environmental impact. I don't consider myself experts on those arguments, uh, but in terms of the health effects, I've looked very deep at all the literature on how different protein sources affect human health. 
And there's pretty strong evidence that smoked and cured processed meats above some threshold of probably 10 to 30 grams per day does start to raise the risk of some cancers. You know, so lots of bacon, lots of sausage, there can be drawbacks to that. Um, and there's also a lot of evidence that, that vegetarian lifestyles and vegan lifestyles are quite healthy. But once we pull apart the lifestyle and once we pull apart the habits and look at healthy omnivores, most of those benefits seem to go away. So a lot of the benefits from those diets are also from including a lot of the plant foods. So I think you can be, do well by including healthy plant foods, but I see no real arguments about in the context of a healthy omnivorous diet about animal protein sources being harmful. And how about supplements? Are there any supplements that you actually recommend to help with either prevention or with reversal or general health in, gen or health in general? Yeah, a lot of things can be condition specific. If someone has particular disturbances to their, their body state, they've got issues of gut health or detox, or you mentioned the adrenal function, things along those lines. Day to day, really just a good mixture of micronutrients. I'm not even a fan of mega doses of those. You know, really covering one's needs with a little bit extra, but not many fold above daily needs. So yeah, with the exception of adding in iodine, just basic vitamins, minerals, um, there's a lot to, there's a lot of discussion for every single one of those as far as amounts and forms and types. But yeah, we formulate a daily reset pack, which is targeted for those with thyroid disease to be their foundation for B vitamins, water-soluble vitamins, fat-soluble vitamins, uh, vitamin D, macro minerals, essential fats. Those are all things someone should cover. Past that point, I'd be wary of too many extra pills though. And how is your new book gonna differ from, from this one? Yeah, so that one is really a good walkthrough on hypo, hyperthyroid cancer. This one is really focusing in on this new story about iodine and autoimmune thyroid disease and how it can be reversed and the logistics of it. And my last question that I want to ask you is because Graves' disease really could affect the eye very bad. Yeah. And I've seen you mention that of the two, Graves is easier to reverse than Hashimoto's. That's bizarre, isn't it? Yes, and why do you think that is? Well, just evidence, it's clinical evidence. So it's, it's more serious in a lot of ways and untreated, it can be fatal. And tragically, I've seen patients that refuse treatment and they've, they've died from that. So it's, it's a big deal and I, I know that. Uh, and Graves' eye disease can be disfiguring and you know more about that than, than I do, but it's a huge thing, it's catastrophic. So Graves is incredibly serious. But when we look at the natural progression of the diseases and the likelihood of spontaneous reversal, so spontaneously, I've seen mixed numbers. I've seen numbers as low as 10 and as high as 24% of Hashimoto's can spontaneously reverse. Graves' disease, once someone reaches a U-thyroid state where they're no longer hyperthyroid, you've got about a 95% chance of the disease reversing within 18 to 24 months. So it takes treatment, but with treatment, in more cases, it goes away than it does for Hashimoto's. And what's the typical treatment for Graves'? Well, so there's three main approaches. There's medications to slow the thyroid. There's radioactive iodine to zap it, or there's surgery to take it out. General distinction is that in the West, we rely mostly on radioactive iodine, whereas many parts of the world focus mostly on the medications. In my practice, I focus more so on medications or a few natural agents that can do a good job slowing it so it can reverse itself. What are some of the natural agents that could slow it? Yeah, there, there's three that work, two that we commonly use clinically. So the, one, of them, one of them that's been used is iodine. So you can use iodine to slow down the thyroid, but there's also a risk of causing thyroid storm. The other two are lithium and uh, fluoride. 
they can be used in prescription strength forms intentionally to slow it. And what, what's thyroid storm? Thyroid storm is one of the worst complications there is in the thyroid world. That's Graves' disease, where the excess amount of thyroid hormone starts creating a feedback that causes more hormone to come out. And so we got this positive feedback cycle. And it can be quite readily fatal. It's, a, it's an emergency room uh, urgency. I want to thank Dr. Christensen for joining me today. Uh, people want to find out more about you, about your books, about your docuseries. How could they do that? You know, easiest thing is Invisible Iodine. They can just go to invisibleiodine.com. That's where the docuseries lives, and they can learn much more about this and how it might relate to them. I, I want to, again, thank you. You're a wealth of information, and really, I really appreciate you spending some time with us today and educating our audience on thyroid, thyroid and thyroid disease. Dr. Gelb, you had some well-formed, thought-out questions. I appreciate that. Nice to be with you. <laughs> thank you. Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat. It's natural y es un buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I like to bring extra, and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You. And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You, because it's safe for me and you.